0: Hi, everyone. It's Greg Campion here. Thank you for joining us for the first installment of a three-part series on Behring's 2022 outlook. This year, we are calling our outlook the new normal comes into view, as our investment teams believe that we are seeing signs of what a post-pandemic new normal may actually look like. As part of this, we are hosting discussions on the outlook for public and private credit markets, which is the discussion that follows here, uh, as well as a discussion on the macroeconomic outlook for 2022, and also a discussion on the topic of investing through climate change. The latter two will be shared on our Streaming Income Podcast channel in the coming weeks, and you'll be able to find more details, including written versions of these discussions on bearings.com in the weeks to come. Finally, if you're not already subscribed to Streaming Income, we'd love to have you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We host regular discussions on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets. So with that, please enjoy the following conversation. welcome ladies and gentlemen to bearings 2022. Public and private credit market outlook. We're delighted uh, that you're able to join us, and uh, I'm delighted to moderate this discussion. Uh, my name is Greg Campion, and uh, I am joined today by a panel of expert credit market investors who I'm also lucky enough to uh, call my colleagues. Um, you know, I'll, I'll introduce the panel shortly, but before we do that, just a quick preview of what we plan to cover today. And we're hoping to cover a lot uh, in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, We want to start out talking about the fundamentals of today's credit market and get perspectives from uh, public markets, private markets, developed markets, uh, emerging markets, etc. We're going to talk about the risks quite a bit because obviously there are a number of risks out there that I'm sure you all um, are considering as you're making allocations today. So whether we're talking about the direction of interest rates... Uh, the potential for further inflation, uh, supply chains, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. There's no shortage of risks to consider, and we're going to dive into all that. But we're also going to talk about opportunities. And you know, I, I'd really like to get views from this group on where they are seeing pockets of value, missed priced assets, et cetera. So let's get to the introductions, and, and then we'll dive in. So uh, first of all, uh, joining us from London this morning is Martin Horn. Uh, Martin is head of uh, public fixed income for bearings. Um, we have next also from London uh, joining us is omatunde Tunde Lawal. Uh, Tunde heads up emerging markets, corporate debt for bearings. Um, Next, we have Taryn Leonard joining us from the beautiful and historic city of Boston, Massachusetts today. Uh, Taryn uh, heads up, or co heads, I should say, uh, our structured credit investments group. So, we're going to talk about CLOs today, which I'm excited about. We also have John McNichols joining us today. John's joining from Barings Global Headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, John is head of multi-strategy investments for our private assets group. So a lot to talk about there. Uh, And then last but not least is Mark Wilton. Mark joining us also from London today. Uh, Mark is a portfolio manager within our global private finance group. So uh, I'm excited about this group that we've uh, assembled here. I think it's the right team to to hopefully give you a really holistic view of what to expect in credit markets in 2022. So uh, enough with the formalities. I will turn to you, Martin, um, to to lead us off here. And and I'm hoping that you can give us your assessment of what you're seeing out there in terms of the fundamental health of today's fixed income public market issuers.
1: Thanks, um, Greg, and hello, everyone. Um, Very briefly, the slightly rosy Uh, story of today's corporate markets is that as most of you will know in the developed market the vaccine program has been uh, pretty effective. Economies are certainly either opening up or fully opened up depending on what stage there are in the vaccine progress. Uh, Companies earnings are picking up as a result so we are certainly seeing an acceleration in corporate and economic activity. Um, Employment levels continue to improve Um, The consumer looks relatively healthy. And at the moment, whilst there are inflationary conditions caused by rising raw materials and some supply side disruption and some wage inflation, um, at the moment, um, corporates appear to have been able to pass those on. We've just gone through an earnings season and, largely speaking, the earnings season um, surprised to the upside. Uh, As I said, that's a slightly rosy picture um, because there may be some hidden. Um, issues underneath the cover of all of this. Um, One of the things is, well, when you think about the nature of inflation, and let's just focus on supply-side disruption, for example, um, the causality of some of that supply-side disruption probably doesn't disappear overnight. So just think about the freight industry, the shipping industry, for example. Um, There is a shortage of freight in the marketplace that has caused freight costs to escalate significantly. And that's an industry that can only really make dynamic changes to supply side dynamics roughly once every two years. So it will adjust, but it probably adjusts over an elongated period of time. Um, the second is wage inflation. You're probably not seeing the full impact of wage inflation on a run rate basis come through corporate earnings just now because a lot of the rises were put through mid-year and probably aren't hitting the numbers in the way that's going to be obvious to the marketplace what the full impact of that is. Um, And when you put these uh, types of aspects together and you think about um, the ability of companies to kind of absorb um, inflating cost levels uh, and indeed you think about the fact that a lot of companies are still um, trading off hedging programs that were put on earlier in the year. These programs are largely six, nine, 12 months in context. And when those hedging programs roll off, again, the true impact of inflation on earnings is likely to become self-evident to the marketplace. So I would expect there to be some erosion of margin levels, unless, of course, the consumer and the end buyers continue to show a propensity to pay higher prices because of the store-up of capital that we've seen in the markets in the post-pandemic era. Um, there's lots of very, very bright people that are taking directionally different views on what the market looks like next year. Defaults today remain low, and I haven't seen too many um, uh, analysts predict a severe escalation of defaults. So that's the good news. Again, I think that probably re- remains relatively benign. Um, but what you are seeing is um, the bulls, if you like, that believe inflationary conditions are transitory. That um, central banks will be able to deal with these in a relatively benign way. They won't disrupt the markets. And ultimately, that will move into a de inflationary market that we observed in the 2019 pre COVID era. And the Bears um, believe that there's something slightly more structural going on from an inflationary standpoint. There may be a need for central bank intervention. And should these events occur, markets with very high asset valuations right now are likely to react. And that could cause uh, yet another moment of volatility in the wider financial markets. So lots of dispersion about the outlook. Lots of very clever people on both sides of that debate who can put very strong and valid arguments to you as to how that will play out. Um, But today, as we sit here today, earnings are pretty good. Issues are in relatively good shape. They're decently capitalized and defaults are low.
0: That's great. Th- thanks for that context, Martin. I think there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to come back to a lot of the points that you just made. But before so, let's let's turn over to Tunde. Um, Tunde, you know, Martin, I think just set the stage really nicely for you know what we're looking at from a developed market landscape. How about emerging markets? There's obviously uh, you know a number of the pressures that that Martin just mentioned also impacting emerging markets, uh, but there's a number of different factors as well. What are you seeing at this point?
2: Thanks, Greg. And yes, you're right. I think Martin set the scene very well. Uh, On the emerging market side as well, what we are seeing is that corporate fundamentals have largely recovered from uh, the pandemic period uh, from last year. I mean, last year, similar to developed markets, we saw double-digit declines in revenues and EBITDAs for a lot of the EM corporates. However, As at the second quarter of 2021, we've seen large recoveries in the revenues and EBITDA for a lot of the companies. So when we're looking at credit metrics um, at at an average basis, the sort of crude measure that we use, which is net leverage, which is your ratio of debt to your profits that you're getting, operating profits, that's actually recovered to below 2019 levels for a lot of EM corporates. And so that shows you that the level of recovery that we've had come through in revenues and EBITDA has been very strong in line with the points that Martin highlighted. You know, the COVID program is um, continuing at pace. You're seeing strong growth and demand for a lot of commodities. A lot of EM corporates are exposed to these commodities. And, and so that's helping boost um, their sort of top line and profitability. The other point is that uh EM corporate default rates have also been relatively low, just just as Martin highlighted on the DM side. Um, Last year, we had default rates around three and a half. I think this year, potentially a touch higher um, given events on developing in Asia, but still largely um, sort of conservative by historical standards. And then, you know, the other point um, that we we can make is that um, when you look at funding as well, you know, there's a lot of Sort of talk at the moment in terms of headwinds, what we're expecting for next year, the supply chain bottlenecks, the chip shortages and all these things. Potentially, that does introduce more inflationary pressure as well for EM corporate. But largely, they can pass this on. So, we're really looking into 2022 to see how much margin compression potentially comes through from these inflationary pressures. But we're expecting that the corporates should be able to pass them on. And the The final point to make about corporate fundamentals is that we've seen a huge amount of refinancing happening during 2020 and 2021 for these corporates. And so they've locked in lower funding costs over the last 12 to 18 months. So even if you had some margin pressure coming through, there's a bit of a buffer in terms of the lower funding costs and the cost savings that they've um, taken through. And that should help keep um, corporate fundamentals relatively stable.
0: Taryn, how about from your perspective? So, uh, you know, your area of expertise is obviously the structured credit or CLO market. Um, that's a market that, you know, I guess like a lot of risk asset classes since the pandemic began has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride. But, you know, it'd be great to hear from you what what your kind of latest assessment is uh, of the health of that market.
3: Sure. Well, we're obviously cognizant of a lot of the downside risks that have already been highlighted. I think that the CLO market right now is in really good shape on two important fronts. On the one side, from a liquidity perspective, all-term structures are well supported. There's been heavy supply in the new issuance calendar, but it's been absorbed without any issues. There's continued to be a robust secondary trading market, even in the presence of such a strong primary market. There's a diverse investor base. It's interesting, unlike earlier on in the pandemic when our assets were trading at you know very depressed prices and it was a lot of opportunistic buyers and fast money people who are driving, particularly investments in the yieldier tranches, that's not the case anymore. And so I think that right now, there's sort of an idea, at least a perception, that liquidity is more predictable in our space, um, which is a welcome change. And part of that is related to the growth of the overall market and, and new participants. But then furthermore, when you look at the credit metrics and the underlying portfolio supporting deals, it's very much an improving scenario. Risks in portfolios are very contained. Right now, if you look at across all the double Bs that we hold, for example, less than 1% and significantly less than 1% of portfolios are invested in credits that are trading below 80, for example. You know, triple Cs are down. Across the double Bs we hold, when you look at exposure to defaulted credits, it's only about 21 basis points. And it's sort of amazing that when, you know, structures really did work the way they were supposed to, even going through what we went through, looking at all the double Bs we hold, we there's only been realized losses of about 48 basis points. So it is interesting. I think that, you know, there are risks in the horizon, but I think that underlying portfolio is in really good shape. And in some ways, the heavy and reset calendar has shored that up even more because there's been additional capital contributions that have come into play for many of these deals, making them even stronger than they would have otherwise been. So we're cognizant of some things in terms of loosening docs and, and other risks, but, but I think we feel really good about the health of the market.
0: Yeah and in turn um you know Tunde and Martin both mentioned the kind of current low default levels uh, in their respective markets. I know in your market uh, you know obviously there were a lot of concerns kind of at the depths of the pandemic that we could see some pretty high default numbers. How's that actually played out over time?
3: Much lower than expectations. You know when we were sitting and looking at each other and discussing where defaults could go certainly in March of of 2020 you know, some prognosticators were saying that we could see things in the neighborhood of twelve to fifteen percent for corporate loans. And obviously, I think that when we would talk to managers and we look at the risks in our portfolios, we thought more realistically, it's probably four to six percent over the next 12 months. It didn't approximate anything like that. Defaults again currently are 21 basis points across double Bs that we own. And when we look at projected defaults, few to none. So I think that silo portfolios do tend to have. A bias for being up in quality, largely because they can't hold as many triple C's as the overall market without having to have implications to, to cash flow, to equity, and, and whatnot. But I think that right now our expectations for defaults are, you know, probably across the low portfolios, certainly sub 2%, and in most cases, considerably sub 2% for at least the next two years.
0: Got it. Okay, thanks for that additional context. Um, okay, so we've we've been talking exclusively about public markets so far. So I want to bring Mark and uh, John into the conversation here. Um, you know, obviously the the private credit markets have seen tremendous growth. You know, over the past decade or so, um, Mark, John, you both have been right in the the midst of it. So, you know, Mark, as you hear uh, our colleagues here describing the the fundamental backdrop here for for public credit markets. I mean, how does that strike you? Is that similar or different to what you're seeing on the ground in the private credit space?
4: Well, thanks, Greg. And yeah, it it is a little different in in private markets because ultimately... Um, It is mid-market businesses to which we're lending. And so there's a different scale. We're a little bit more isolated in our portfolios from from the overall macro trends that you see in public markets. Because the key when building a a sort of private debt portfolio is all about the credit quality of each individual asset. We tend to be biased towards defensive, non-cyclical sectors. Clearly, individual assets within our portfolios are not immune to macro events. Um, You know, there is... uh, um, macro drivers clearly impact each asset's micro environment. And we watch carefully the impact, of uh, particularly um, cost inflation, supply chain disruption, labour shortage, energy prices. All of these can indiv- impact individual credits. Um, but I think the impact is on those individual assets rather than a systematic risk across overall portfolios. And the experience, I think, of private debt's coming out of the pandemic is that as an asset class, it's demonstrated its resilience. Um, you know, it's been tested and it's come through as a sort of steady and consistent performer. And I think that's important, particularly in, you know, illiquid markets as such as ours, that, you know, we need to achieve um, a sort of a premium, clearly, to public markets. And I think individual managers tend to have more discrete portfolios because it's all about the individual assets that they're backing and investing in. And so there's less overlap. And that tends to mean that you will have sort of the odd poorer performer, uh, and that's perhaps because they've, you know, have not had the right access to transaction. They they they're too heavy in the wrong sectors, or just frankly poor asset selection. So there will be the odd um, the odd casualty, but I think in general, as an asset class, um, it's performed well.
0: Um, John, you're no stranger to the world of private credit yourself. Um, Of course, your role is a little bit different today um, in that you're looking across a number of different um, private asset classes. So I guess the question for you would be, you know, within the context of everything that you've just heard, are there any big trends that you are seeing right now um, that are impacting, you know, the investment landscape?
5: So, yeah, both, both kind of on the investor side as well as on the fundamental side. So first so on the fundamental side, you know the, the obviously, the very same trends that Martin and Tunde and, and Taryn have ex- described affect private markets as well. The difference is private markets don't react quite as quickly. They sort of take their time. Um, their returns over time, yields tend to be less volatile. Um, and and losses tend to be uh, incurred or taken when incurred as opposed to sort of on, we, we don't really mark to market. So uh, I think our markets are pretty constructive on the economy. I'm mean, pretty consistent with Martin's outlook. Um, you know, recently spreads have widened a bit in public markets. We haven't really seen that much in private markets. We're sort of waiting to see. And that's true kind of across the board. Um, so, and, and to to the point on or to the investor side, we, we have seen a couple of things in the last few years, which I think are worth marking, remarking on. One is pretty obvious, which is that there's a lot more capital flowing into private markets these days. You know, we've seen it. We've seen more inquiry. We've taken on greater AUM, it appears to be happening elsewhere in the in the market as well. Um, <clears throat> spreads systematically are not tighter. I think the market, the the, the, the capital markets are responding with more supply. And so, so we seem to have a pretty good balance there. Um, And importantly, illiquidity premiums have been very high recently. And part of that's a function of very low public market spreads. So again, our markets react less quickly. And so as public market spreads move in or out, our markets tend to stay pretty stable. And that's true whether you're talking about direct lending or infrastructure debt, private asset backs, anything we do, real estate, uh, it's just a slower reaction time. And so the illiquidity premium, which is the difference between public market assets and then private markets assets of similar credit risk, has been pretty ample and pretty good, which which is good for private market investors. Um, that could be an anticipation of higher rates, who knows, but but for the time being, it's good and, and, and we'll take it. Um, on, the, on the investor side, the other dynamic we're seeing is, uh, and it's t- sort of tied to the point on greater flows, is we're seeing investors with an interest in more than one strategy or uh, investors coming to us with uh, a target return or risk uh, objective and saying, how can I Achieve this in the most efficient way, and I think that's a function of a couple of things. One, I think uh, there are more things to invest in. So, I think historically, if you were a high grade investor, you pretty much had private placements, infrastructure, and real estate. You're a high yield investor, you had direct lending, maybe some infrastructure debt, and and as there, what we've seen more recently is an expansion in the opportunity set, specifically, and I think importantly on the structured side. So, uh, private asset backs, private residential mortgage whole loans. We're seeing a real expansion there. And that's happening in the economy. You know, there's a lot more innovation on that side of the economy with fintech and, and companies creating financial assets in creative ways, whether it's point-of-sale Mortgage lenders creating large consumer uh, lending subsidiaries. So there's just a huge uh, amount of assets being created there. And I think that's a great opportunity for investors to diversify. And so uh, you know, we have the core plus concept in, in public market bonds. And, and I think you're starting to see a little of that in the private markets. And as people are increasing their private allocations, rather than do so with a, a whole bunch of managers, they're saying, why don't we find somebody who can do more than one of these things to reduce our administrative and managerial load. Um, And generally in the market, like I said, illiquidity premiums are good across the market. I would say we see more value, whether it's real estate, uh, middle market lending, and Mark can correct me if I'm wrong there, infrastructure debt, a little more value in Europe than in the US. European investors seem to be pricing risk a little more discriminately than US investors are these days. And so those, those are some general comments.
0: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, it's a, it, it has been incredible to watch the the growth and, uh, to some degree, the innovation that you've just mentioned in, in the private asset space. Um, I think you're going to be busy for a long time to come, especially when it comes to parsing where relative value um, exists uh, between all these different asset classes. You know, speaking of relative value, I want to come back to you, Martin, um, and address two related concerns. I guess I would say one would be, you know, the direction of interest rates. The other would be uh, the potential for inflation, which you you addressed in your opening comments. Obviously, the two are you know quite related. But um, you know, from your seat, so you you've got a really unique view as head of public fixed income. So not only are you looking at high yield, but you know your teams are looking at uh, investment grade. You're looking at ABS, emerging market debt, uh, structured credit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, quite a wide variety of public market asset classes. As you think about the outlook for rates, and I know you know, one day we're we're more worried about rates, the next day we're more worried about growth. So it, it seems to oscillate back and forth by the day. But, but given everything you see right now, all the inputs, you know, how are you thinking about managing uh, interest rate risk?
1: I'm old enough to remember how, in the good old days, you didn't hear from central bankers much. Since Lehman's really central bankers, without actually putting it on paper, have changed their mandate. And one of their mandates is to calm the markets and over-communicate with the markets. And that's exactly what you're seeing across the board, is that there is an over-communication to manage market expectations, so that when central banks do move, it's largely been Telegraph to the marketplace, and the market will therefore adjust on a more gradual and manageable um, level. And I think that's exactly what we are going to see from central banks this time around, is that they are, through narrative, um, managing the market positions upwards and downwards to ensure that the, whatever transition to the next interest rate environment will be somewhat orderly and should not spook the markets um, uh, too much. Um, I I think also what will temper their aggressiveness, regardless of what your inflationary expectations are and how this translates as we go into 2022, is the causality or the nature of this inflation. You think about just one aspect of it and the supply-side disruption. Well, one of the contexts to supply-side disruption is, I mentioned from a developed market context Vaccine rollouts have gone pretty well, and you know, in certain economies, we're talking about booster jabs already, and people are learning to live with COVID. Um, in emerging markets, that's not the case yet, and um, we are still seeing regional lockdowns. For example, in China, um, which will cause ongoing supply side disruption. Now, a fifty basis point rise in US or UK treasuries or gilts will not necessarily deal with that issue. And won't necessarily temper some of the ongoing inflationary conditions that we have within our marketplace. So I think it's unlikely that we will see central banks either surprise the markets with over aggressive moves. You've seen in the past that that's really the only time when the markets kind of overreact um, uh, to uh, their behavior. Uh, and also, I think that they'll be realistic as to what they're trying to achieve when they do push. Um, rates through. There are lots and lots of credit asset classes um, that I think um, provide you with some insulation from this. I mean the most exposed is obviously investment grade because it's a long dated uh, classically corporate investment grade or sovereigns that can be long dated fixed rate instruments that when curves at the really long ends start moving out um, their asset pricing can get disrupted. But within the context of that asset class there are plenty of short duration or duration cap strategies that investors can employ that mitigate um, the more extreme impacts of of rate rises and again because i think that it's going to be kind of measured and we've seen that this year with um, the way that the us 10-year has kind of moved upwards it feels like it's not going to move in big lock steps it's going to move in more, more sort of gradual managed positions but we will see as we go into 2022. On the other side of it, in the credit markets, there are plenty of variable rate and short-term and short-duration instruments. So high yield, for example, what's a classic investor misconception is because it's fixed, um, but it has a, a big um, spike of volatility associated with interest rates. Actually, uh, in the last 25 years, there's only two times that happened. And that was when there was a rate rise in 2002 during the um, tech bubble bursting Um, So there was other stuff going on. And also, I think in May 2008, when the rate rise was put through then just in front of Lehman's, um, the the high yield market reacted uh, pretty negatively, but there was other stuff going on. Generally speaking, if you believe that rate rises occur when economies are doing pretty well, um, high yield markets are are still very positive in their reaction to that because spreads tighten in the context of relatively robust economic conditions. So the short duration, not too impacted. And then you move into the kind of variable rate um, instruments. You've got Taryn there with structured credit, variable rate instruments, um, uh, not taking big long duration positions. You've got the private debt markets offering you variable rate kind of loans and other instruments. Some of the securitized instruments offer you variable rate context. And so you can move yourself into positions where actually there's asset classes out there that in a rising rate instrument won't react negatively. Indeed, they react more positively to that rate rising profile. Um, So investors have options. Um, Generally speaking, the world is long fixed rate instruments. And the only thing I would encourage investors to do is think about these positions now. I'm sure they are because this narrative is not new to us. Um, but there's lots of ways to manage a, manage or mitigate those risks, depending on which side of the economic divide, the forecasting divide I described earlier, our particular investor base sits.
0: Yep, great point. Uh, lots of options these days for for variable rate exposure, both public and and private market. Um, You know, Martin mentioned uh, the the lockdowns in China as something um, that the team is keeping an eye on. Sunday, let me turn it over to you because I I think any discussion on uh, the outlook for 2022 would be incomplete without, um, you know, an assessment of what's happening in China. So obviously, over the past year or so, um, we've just seen headline after headline, uh, especially related to to some of the big regulatory changes that have occurred in China. So, how are you sizing that up today? Um, and, and I guess you know for our for our audience today, it'd be really interesting to hear not only um, the potential impact you see on emerging market debt, your area of expertise, um, but also would be I'd be curious certainly to to know if you see contagion risk coming out of China for for developed markets.
2: Thanks, Greg. That's a, it's a very meaty question, that one. So,
3: um,
2: I mean, China has been one of the most topical markets uh, for us in 2021. And, you know, for, for those who probably haven't followed it quite as closely, the quick recap there is that we've had sort of government um, regulatory changes across lots of different sectors in China. So it started off with sort of real estate in the second half of 2020, and then moved into the tech sector, and then moved into the education sector uh, right about the summer of this year. And so we've had huge amounts of volatility and spread widening all through China. But I think you'd sort of take a step back and you try and sort of think what the Chinese government is really trying to achieve. And from our perspective, what we think they're trying to do is sort of embark upon long awaited reforms in certain Sectors. I think the phrase that the government has put out there at the moment is common prosperity. And really, under this umbrella of common prosperity, what they're trying to do is redistribute income, um, trying to improve the social safety net, and just trying to improve uh, sort of productivity as well, with the other sort of goal that they've stated about sort of decarbonization targets by 2060. So, there's a lot of different competing objectives that the government's trying to achieve post-pandemic. So, naturally, there's going to be the growing pains and the volatility that comes with that. So, for us, um, we've seen huge amounts of volatility, specifically in the real estate sector. But to to address uh, sort of the final bit of your question, is there a concern that this could cause contagion outside of China? Certainly, from where we are at the moment, at, at least in terms of the um, The situation going on with the real estate sector is a very low likelihood that that causes contagion outside of China. And the reason for that is uh, several fold. It's the fact that to cause contagion, you need a mechanism a cross-border mechanism and typically that's a global financial system and the Chinese property sector the lending the credit pro- provision to the Chinese real estate sector is large it largely comes from the Chinese banks themselves there's very little exposure of international banks to the Chinese real estate sector so there's very little avenue for you to have contagion even if that real estate sector is weakening is very little um opportunity for that to cause contagion outside of China the other part is actually um the investors and the the people with the exposure to some of the bond's from the Chinese real estate sector, it's predominantly the local and regional investors. It's it's not as many international investors with exposure. You know, when we look at the data points that come out post these sort of new uh, new deals, the bond deals when they come out, most of the allocation tends to go to the region. 78% of the bond allocation tends to be placed with local and regional accounts. So there isn't huge amounts, at least not from the primary um, angle. There isn't huge amounts of this sitting outside of China. So again, even with the mark to market losses and things that are going through, it doesn't necessarily cause that overwhelming pressure of outflows or anything outside of the region.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sunday. There's a lot to get your arms around there. Um, and fortunately, uh, I'll give another plug because I know that you've, you've put pen to paper on this one. So if our listeners uh, go to bearings.com to the viewpoint section, um, you can see all of Tunde's thoughts um, on this subject, which I'm sure are continuing to evolve by the day. So uh, we'll probably need to get you to write something, something else soon on that subject. All right. I'd like to turn to the final and perhaps most exciting part of this discussion. We'll see. Um, And I may be accused of burying the lead here, putting this at the end. But uh, I want to talk about uh, predictions maybe is the wrong word, but I want to talk about opportunities and risks that you all see in 2022. And I want to give you the opportunity to to, to tell me maybe your your top one or two opportunities and your top one or two uh, risks. So, Martin, I'm going to give you the least amount of time to think about it. Um, what, what, what do you th- what are you seeing out there in terms of opportunities and risks?
1: Well, I think you've got to kind of think about the risk before you can think about the opportunities. Um, With current asset prices being where it is, Um, I mean, risks, you can pick any poison you like, frankly, Um, inflation, central bank activity, um, the uh, geopolitical events such as China's policy towards uh, Taiwan, ongoing COVID disruption, of course, black swan events that we can't possibly predict, but ultimately have a fairly disruptive effect on, on markets. Um, I, I don't focus when I think about you, you never sleep at night if you focus on all of these events and all of them are possible in different guises um, in the near term, um, if not probable. Um, but um, generally speaking, um, when you uh, think about the kind of the markets, the big risk is the amount of cash that sits in these markets right now. Um, Even though, as I sit here today, um, the equity markets don't feel overly bullish about the outlook, they're still near record highs, and we're still going through all these inflationary concerns that we um, discussed earlier. Um, So any one of those events um, will likely cause a decent um, market um, price movement on the liquid side and, and it really starts with the equity markets as you well know. I mean just think about what history has told you about the likelihood of that um, since 2008 we've had Lehman's, we've had sovereign debt, um, we've had the commodity cycle, we had Q418 and now we've had COVID so it's five, five in 12. Every two or three years you're likely to get a big market movement, a correction of some form um, caused by some uh, event. So if you accept that something is likely and there's a range of outcomes, um, the opportunities for me are, well, depending if you're bullish and bearish, liquid loans um, are very, very stable, generally asset classes. um, They don't tend to get as um, impacted by these big events, certainly over sort of Um, A number of months, they they return to par pretty quickly. So there are asset classes that you can insulate yourself with. But rather than be as inflexible as pick one or two, I would suggest that investors' best approach is understand the context of your own outlook um, and have flexible mandates. Because the world has taught you over the last 12 years that um, situations change very quickly. Opportunity sets between all these credit classes that they're discussing Today, change very quickly. So, give yourself a context of mandates that allow you to pick a manager that will adjust as they see these events unfold in front of their eyes and dynamically allocate into those opportunity sets as they present themselves in the marketplace. Because you can be sure of one thing that um, volatility is part of our existence. It's the way the financial markets have evolved and it's the way that they sit today. And I would certainly expect in the next two or three years, you're going to see some asset price correction at some level that's going to give you an opportunity set you want to go after.
0: Yeah, makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Taryn, uh, how about f- from your perspective, biggest opportunity, biggest risk?
3: We'll also start with risk. And in addition to the macro items that Martin pointed out, because obviously at the end of the day, our risk really are the risks to the underlying loan portfolios. But the other thing that I'd mention is that in the immediate term, I think that the transition from LIBOR to SOFR, could pose some interesting um, risks. And in some ways, you know, somebody on my team said to me the other day, a junior guy, I don't understand. You guys keep talking about risks associated with labor to sofa transition, but hasn't this been well telegraphed? Well, yes, it has, and we all knew it was going to be coming. But believe it or not, there's still a lot of the specifics that are being worked out. So things like the adjustment that's going to be assigned. And when you're buying CLO equity, for example, and you're 12 and a half times levered to the underlying loans, whether that adjustment ends up being zero or 10 basis points or 26 basis points, which are all in the realm of possibility in very quick order, are meaningfully different outcomes for your value proposition. And because of the way that the transition language varies across deals, Not everything's going to change at the same time. And so there could be basis, which could be both risk and opportunity for the way things are valued in the secondary market. Um, But I think that that is going to add a wrinkle until things um, become a little bit more clear. In terms of opportunities, um, I'd say two things. I think that one is right now, there's probably the biggest spread in price differentiation um, in double B CLO tranches in particular that I've seen in any sort of functioning market. If I look over the past few weeks, looking at new issues with the same structures and very similar risk dynamics, i.e. things like market value coverage, we see some deals pricing at the tights at LIBOR plus 610 to 615 at par. And we see other deals that we've purchased at 765 at 98. Those are very different, um, you know, observable levels for similar risk. we think that there's an opportunity if you really know and understand manager strategy, performance um, philosophy that to you know to add value by by investing in some of those um, managers that aren't perhaps well received despite despite positive performance. The other thing I'd say is CLO equity. When we look at CLO equity, senior CLO tranches have tightened um, significantly more than the underlying loans. and quite honestly, rising rates will provide a pathway for CLO. AAA spreads to tighten further. The reality of it is, on an all-in yield basis, when you're in a almost net, you know zero yield environment for for the risk-free rate, you just you're not going to tighten much from sort of that LIBOR plus very low 100s context. But if we do start to see rates rise a bit and all-in yields are more attractive, that could also drive AAA's tighter, which becomes even increasingly interesting for CLO equity. And right now, we're seeing equity trade both primary and secondary in the context of what we see. As probably eleven to fourteen percent expected returns, and that's pretty attractive relative to the you know competing opportunity sets out there, and then also relative to a very low risk-free rate. So we think that's something to keep your eye on as well.
0: Really, really interesting, Taryn. and uh, and also thanks for bringing up the LIBOR. So for transition, um, I think that's a, that's an important. Um, uh, I guess, risk uh, in some ways to, to keep an eye on. Um, all right, Tunde, emerging market corporate debt. Um, what are you seeing in, in terms of the biggest risks and biggest opportunities in 2022?
2: All right, keeping with highlighting the risks first, I think, you know, touching on the macro, I think for us, it's it's all things China. So I think one of the biggest possible risk is a policy error in China. You know, there, there is a reform underway. There is change underway there. And whilst the Chinese economy has a very strong cushion to absorb and policy tools to deal with the change that is underway, I think one of the concerns, uh, potential headwinds could be a policy error. Maybe they take it a little bit too far, and maybe that causes too much of a pronounced slowdown in the economy, which causes the contagion to the rest of the asset class and the rest of the world. So I think that's a potential risk uh, to highlight. In terms of opportunities for us, I'd say EM corporate specifically, I find that the high yield segment of our market is still quite um, attractive. When I look at the basis between IG and high yield, I find that that basis is wider relative to the long run. Um, average, and so that makes it more interesting for me. When I look back over the last few months where I've seen the pockets of volatility, volatility in my market brings opportunities. So when I look at where we've had pockets of volatility, I look at Brazil, I look at Ukraine, I look at Turkey. These are high-yield markets. These are high-yield segments, and this is where some of the opportunities are. Uh, I look at where the index is on a year-to-date basis, and then I look at Brazil. Brazil is about 50 bits wider on a year-to-date basis. There are opportunities there for me to explore. I look at Ukraine. It's wider on a year-to-date basis. There's
0: Opportunities there to exploit. That's great. That's great. Lots to look at, and vol- vol- I like that volatility uh, could potentially represent opportunity. Um, Mark, same question from a private credit standpoint: opportunities and
4: risks. Yeah, okay, well, I'm going to follow the trend and start with risks as well. I think it's a little different when you're looking at an illiquid private debt portfolio because your biggest risk is is ultimately credit loss and so it's sort of it's losses that's what kills returns and so maintaining discipline on credit quality in you know a a competitive market is absolutely key and that's the sort of i think the sort of key risk it's maintaining like good access to transaction selecting high quality credits and then competing hard to win because ultimately in private markets credit quality is everything you know, the, the the three main things to run a successful private debt fund is avoid losses, avoid losses, avoid losses, because it is it sort of, it, it is that, um, you know, sort of focused. Uh, and, and, and in terms of sort of growth opportunities... Now, I think that there is a clear growth opportunity for private credit. There's probably three main drivers. There is still um, a continued trend away from traditional banks in mid-markets um, across the globe, um, and I think regulatory pressures continue to drive that. And so, private markets will grow, um, sort of, um, if everything else remains equal. I think, in terms of, uh, of secondly as well, you're probably seeing direct lenders. Um, increase scale a little bit and be able to therefore push up in terms of in terms of the take and hold capabilities, mm-hmm. which moves them into a slightly different sphere. And that as well will, will create um, sort of growth in the marketplace. Um, finally, we're probably, again, more isolated from the ups and downs of Capital markets and and the sort of um, the the capital flows, what drives our market is is the dry powder held by private equity funds around the world, and and that is at all time highs, and I think that that gives me confidence in terms of what will power um, you know private equity driven deal flow um, it, it through the uh, through the medium term.
0: Thank you, Mark and John. Last word for you again: opportunities and risks.
5: All right. Risks. a share Terrence risk on the SOFR transition or the LIBOR a transition for the same reasons. Our market has a lot of floating rate stuff. Uh, so watch out for that. I, I personally am a little worried about the mismatch today between I'll call it market expectations for fed movement in 2022 and what I perceive the fed to be saying, you know, and, and as those of us on the call here, who've been doing this for a while know, you know, when the fed does things that are not expected or, or otherwise sort of uh uh, irregular, that creates problems in the market. So those general things I worry about. Um, I don't worry about uh, fundamentals coming out of this. I do think you know, fiscal policy, especially in the US going to continue to be supportive and, and I think that's going to help. Uh, with respect to specific opportunities, uh, if you're a high risk investor, I think you know Mark, Mark is probably bashful. But I think you know uh, European direct lending is a really attractive opportunity. The illiquidity premium are very significant and the overall advantage over what you can buy in that risk category in the. US is pretty attractive. That's one thing. I think uh, some hotel properties, real estate uh, debt and equity, is really attractive right now. Not as cheap as it was last year, but it's still attractive. And you know, if, you, if you select correctly, I think you can do really well there. For sort of high-grade fixed-income investors, the thing that has popped on our charts for the last year and a half, two years, and continues to are a subset of the private residential mortgage sector, um, specifically EBOs, but there are some other variations of that, and uh, Early buyout loans, uh, which we can talk about if anybody's interested. So there are certain subsectors there that are continue to be really attractive for high-grade fixed income investors. Um, and I would underscore that illiquidity premia across the board in private assets are wide. And I don't mean for this to be an advertisement. I think it's just objectively so. Uh, yet I don't think the fundamental risks are wider. And so I, I think I think that generally is an opportunity.
0: Thank you, John. Appreciate that. And thank you to all of our panelists. Really appreciate your time today. I think this has been a really uh, insightful discussion. Uh, if you are interested, uh, you can check out the written version uh, of this discussion as well, which is available on bearings.com. Um, otherwise, we really appreciate your time today. and Thank you for listening and uh, and thanks for your continued support. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation. Just a reminder that a written version of it will be posted to bearings.com under the viewpoints tab. If you'd like to stay up to date on the thoughts of all of the panelists you heard in this discussion, please be sure to follow Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.